All right, as we come to Scripture, let's uh, center ourselves in a word of prayer. God, as we now uh, just bring our attention to the words of Scripture, we recognize, as always, the living and active nature of this, this text. As we read, as we study, as we listen, uh, we are not engaging with ancient dead words, but we're engaging with something that is living and active And we recognize that your spirit is alive and moving. And so give us an openness, give us a receptiveness, speak, and allow us to hear how you are speaking. Challenge and comfort and do all these things that only you can do. So give us a sense of anticipation and engagement as we open these scriptures together. In your name we pray, amen. So if you haven't already, uh, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. That passage that Danny read is... uh, is going to be the focus of what we're going to talk about this morning. And if you've been with us for the last few months, well, the last few weeks, we've been uh, working through some of the, the events in Jesus's life. Every year here at Celebration, we start the beginning of the year in the Gospels, and we, we recenter ourselves and refocus ourselves on who Jesus was. And so this year, we've been working mostly through the Gospel of Matthew, and especially over the last few weeks, we've been Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And this Sermon on the Mount is uh, a really famous uh, collection of teachings, uh, one big teaching that Jesus gave uh, that many say kind of sums up a lot of what he was up to, a lot of what he was about in one uh, singular teaching. And so we started this series by uh, looking at these, these blessing statements. We called them the Attitudes, And what we reflected on was the fact that Jesus was offering his listeners, his disciples, a new definition of what human flourishing looked like. That was the word that we used. What does it look like to flourish as a human? What does it look like to live the type of life that God intended you? And it doesn't uh, look like someone who is constantly grasping for power. It doesn't look like somebody who's constantly gloating victoriously over his enemies. But it looks like somebody who is humble It looks like somebody who is dependent on God. It looks like somebody who lives and acts with with mercy and compassion. And so that's how Jesus begins his sermon. And then last week, uh, Matt was here. And Matt talked a little bit about what it looks like to be salt and light. But more specifically, he talked about this phrase, the righteousness of the Pharisees and and what that means. Because Jesus, uh, in chapter 5, verse 20 Uh, says something that has been a really challenging verse for many people when he says, uh, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what Matt wanted us to see is that what Jesus is suggesting is a different type of righteousness, a righteousness that is grounded on who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that because this verse that, uh, that I just read uh, becomes kind of the, 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 the launching point for this next series of teachings uh, that Danny read us a, a portion of them. And like all of the teachings of Jesus, we could go verse by verse, line by line, word by word, and just constantly find the beauty and power in this. But what I want to do this morning is just kind of take maybe a wide angle view at what Jesus is doing in this passage. So less about maybe the specifics of the teaching and more about the general principles of what Jesus is getting at, because I think that will help us to understand who Jesus is. And I think uh, that will also help us to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to, to, to follow, follow him in our lives. So 
We're going to talk about that. And uh, we, we need to first start by talking a little bit about the target of Jesus's sermon here, right? Because he's teaching his disciples. But in that verse we just read, uh, he kind of shift his, shifts his focus to this certain group of people, right? Because he says, unless your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right? And so Jesus is, is kind of critiquing this particular group of people within first century Judaism. And I know for a lot of you, if you grew up going to church, if you grew up, grew up around uh, the Bible, talking about Pharisees and, and teachers of the law, it's kind of second nature. And we all know that those are the bad guys, right? And those are the people that Jesus is against. And Jesus is a good guy and the Pharisees are the bad guys. But I want to talk a little bit more about who they were and where they came from, because I think that will help us to understand why Jesus has such a problem uh, with these guys. So the origin of the Pharisees actually dates back several hundred years before the time of Jesus uh, to the time of the exile. Up until that point, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the way that you practiced your faith, if you were a good God-fearing Jewish person, the way that you practice your faith is that you went to the temple in Jerusalem and you worshiped God in the temple. Right? The temple was the place that God himself dwelt. That's where the priests were. That's where the proper sacrifices took place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant, like these really sacred and significant things, right? And so all of religious practice for a good Jewish person up until this time was focused on this place, the temple. And worshiping God at the temple was central to your identity as a Jewish person. However, uh, something rather significant happened in the year 538 B.C., when the Babylonian Empire laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, knocked down the walls, uh, and burned the temple to the ground. So this is a tragic event uh, for many reasons. One, it's just, uh, it's just a, a sad thing. We see people dying, people being killed. Uh, but there's a theological tragedy here as well, right? Because if your whole faith and practice was centered around worshiping God in this particular place, and now this particular place is a pile of ashes and rocks, suddenly practicing your faith becomes quite difficult, right? And this was a, a, real, a real question at the heart of the Jewish people uh, during this time, is how do we be faithful Jews when there is no temple? Everything that we did was centered around this place. This place is gone. So what does that mean for us? Can we still be faithful to the God that we have been worshiping and our ancestors have been worshiping? And so while the Jewish people were in exile in Babylon, waiting to return to their land, they began to mull over this question. And the solution, in, in really simple terms, uh, kind of looked something like this. We can't worship God in his presence in the temple. But we can focus our lives around the words that God gave us, specifically the words that he gave us through the law. The first five books of the Bible uh, sometimes are called the Torah or the, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Those constitute the five books of the law, and these represent the words that God gave the Jewish people that kind of set their trajectory in motion. And so during this time in exile, uh, they began to say, well, we can't worship God at the temple, but what we can do is we can center our lives around following this law and focusing our attention on listening to how God spoke to our ancestors. And by doing that, we can kind of reconnect with him in the way that we used to at the temple. 
And so this developed the tradition uh, of, of the scribes or the teachers of the law. Eventually, a group called the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes kind of came out of this tradition that essentially said, if we want to be faithful to our, our tradition, our religion, we need to, to, to soak ourselves in the words of the law. We need to make this kind of the, the, the cornerstone of our people and our culture. We need to follow these rules, follow these laws, follow these things, and that will uh, become the center of how we do and practice our faith. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? That sounds actually like a pretty good solution to this problem. We can't worship God at the temple, so let's kind of put ourselves in a place where we're listening to his words. I mean, that's kind of what we do when we gather here, right? We understand scripture as the word of God, and we soak ourselves in the words as, as a way to practice our faith. But the problem kind of started to arise uh, years and years after that, when you would have an elite group of people who were sort of, maybe you could call them professional religious people, right? Like this was their job, was to be religious, and so they spent all of their time and all of their energies reading these laws of Scripture and making sure that they didn't break or, or, or trespass on any of these laws. And so their entire lives were focused around making sure that they didn't break the laws that were at the center of their religion, which again, there's nothing inherently wrong in that in itself. But what soon began to develop uh, is what I would maybe refer to as a sort of checklist morality. This sense that, that kind of came out of this, this tradition of focusing on the law so much that basically said, all right, here are the 10 things the law says, or the 100 things the law says, or the 614 things that the law says. And if I can make sure that I am living in such a way where I can check off each of those laws and every day, lay my head down and say, yes, I did not break one of those 614 laws, then I am a religious person. I am a holy person. I have obtained righteousness because I have checked off all of the list of morality. Which again, <laughs> is not necessarily a bad thing. But as you can see what's happening here, is we begin to take something that God gave the people as a way to express to them who he was, right? The law in scripture is often referred to as this, this beautiful thing in which God revealed himself through the law. And it began to be elevated as, maybe we would call it a sort of idol. This thing where uh, if I can do this, if I can check these off, then I am worshiping God. And so the most important thing in my life is following these particular set of, of laws. And it doesn't really matter what I do with the rest of my time and the rest of my energy. It doesn't really matter how much I understand the heart of the God behind these laws. It doesn't really matter how much I know about God as long as I can keep this list and check these things off. And anybody who doesn't check these things off in the same way I do, uh, they're kind of they're below me. They're outside of me. Okay? So this sort of checklist morality uh, is the type of thing that was really identifying of uh, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law in Jesus' day. Probably the, the clearest place where Jesus calls them out on that is in Matthew chapter 23. So flip there real quick. This is one of my, my favorite passages in Scripture because it's almost, uh, not to, to trivialize Jesus in any way, but it's almost as if in this section he's kind of been holding in 
all of this like <laughs> pent up aggression and frustration at these teachers in the law and Pharisees. And it all just kind of like spills out in this one chapter. It's like uh, his, his festive, festivus airing of grievances here, right? Got a lot of problems with you people. Now you're going to hear about them. So uh, starting, I want to just jump into verse 23. There's a lot here. This is like Jesus's diss track uh, towards the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But listen to how he says this. It says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel, <laughs> right? What is Jesus saying here? You teachers of the law and Pharisees have become so focused on these minute details, making sure that your checklist of, oh yes, I tithe, I'm actually such a good tither that I tithe a tenth of my cumin, <laughs> right? So next time you go to Meyer and you buy your little thing of cumin, make sure you get your scale out and weigh out 10% of it, right? And bring that to me, put it on my desk, uh, right? This focus on the minutiae of the law, which Jesus doesn't have a problem with, right? But what does he have a problem with? You've become so focused on that that you've missed what this was all about to begin with, <laughs> which is righteousness, mercy, and justice. In other words, you've looked past the heart of God because you've become so focused on this checklist morality that you have begun to idolize. And Jesus is just getting warmed up here, right? Woe to you, verse 27 or verse 25, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgences. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean, right? Jesus is probably kind of making fun of the cleanliness laws that these people, in order to make sure that they weren't breaking one of their 614 laws, would not even eat out of dishes or cups if they could not identify where they came from and if they were clean properly because they didn't want to become ceremonially unclean. And so Jesus is kind of mocking them, saying, you guys are spending all your time cleaning your dishes, but guess what? <laughs> you are the one who's filthy on the inside, it doesn't matter if you drink out of a dirty cup because you're already dirty because you've missed the point to begin with. You're not actually worshiping God. You're worshiping the law. You've missed the giver of the law in order to worship the law that he gave. And then, and this is my personal favorite in verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Drops the mic, right? <laughs> wow. Like this is, the, the way that this would have been received, like we read this as harsh, but for a first century Jew and a Pharisee who kept themselves and, and, and strived to do everything in their life to keep themselves away from unclean and dead things, right? Jesus is saying, look, you look nice. You look good. 
You got a pretty cloak on. I like the tassels on the fringes of your garments. But guess what? You are full of the dead bones of the unclean things. You're full of pig guts, right? Profoundly shocking, uh, just, just hurtful things that Jesus is saying. But what is his point? His point is you have become so obsessed with this sort of checklist morality. As long as I don't do these things and as long as I do these things, then I am righteous with God. And you've become so focused on this that you've missed the whole point. The whole point of the law was to allow people to understand who God was, to understand his heart of love and mercy and justice, to understand his heart of redemption and really his heart of grace. Yet they've missed all of that because they've idolized this this checklist. So these are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus is talking about and that Jesus is critiquing in the Sermon on the Mount. So jump back with me. Uh, Well, actually, I, I do want to point out one other thing real quick. Because what's especially interesting about this is that the Pharisees have missed the point here but they really shouldn't have, have missed it at all because this is what the prophets have been telling the people of God for, for generations. In the book of Isaiah, which was written hundreds of years before the time of the Pharisees, look at what Isaiah says, or the Lord says through Isaiah. These people come near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules that they have been taught. I find that so interesting that the Pharisees, even though they've developed this tradition hundreds of years later, this is what their ancestors were doing. And they didn't learn. <laughs> and they didn't learn from the prophet's words to Isaiah. And it takes Jesus making fun of them and embarrassing them. And they still don't get it. <laughs> but uh, but th- this is such a, a clear kind of continuous theme in Scripture. So back to Matthew chapter 5. Because I want to bring all of that uh, kind of into to what's going on here. These people who have become so focused on the law and the checklist of the law that they've missed out on understanding the giver of the law, right? The source of the law, which is the thing that is actually important. And so Jesus begins uh, this, this critique of them by saying this, you have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder. Right? So this is one of the Ten Commandments. This is one of the, the, the core ten laws of what the Pharisees, the teachers of the people of Israel, would have been holding to, which many of us still hold to today. You shall not murder. That's generally kind of on the checklist for us, I'm hoping. Uh, not very many people agreed with me. That's bothersome. Right? So you've heard it said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, So here's Jesus kind of interjecting here. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, rakha, which would be like a term of contempt, like saying, you are below me, you're less than me, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Then he gives these examples. Therefore, if you're offering a gift, And while you're offering your gift, you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the the altar and first go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift, right? So in this first one, Jesus lays out 
uh, or, or, or identifies something that would have been on the checklist, right? Thou shall not murder, right? He says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And most of you are pretty good at keeping this law, I think Jesus would say. But, and this is where his brilliance comes in. Because he doesn't just simply critique this kind of checklist morality. He digs into it. He begins to open up the tomb and expose kind of what's underneath. Because what he says here is that this law is not just about being somebody who can check off the list and say, yes, I do not murder. I can go to bed feeling righteous tonight. But Jesus reveals that there's something deeper here, right? He says, if you speak in anger or contempt to somebody, if you think of yourself as better than your neighbor, and you say a word to them that makes them feel in that sort of way, you are just as guilty as anyone who, who murders. That sounds pretty harsh, right? So, so here's what you should do instead. If you're on your way to Jerusalem and you're ready to worship God and you remember that you have this, this, this relationship of anger, this relationship of dissent, go and fix that first and then come and worship God. And I think that image is really at the heart of what Jesus is getting at here, right? Jesus is not simply looking for people who can check off the morality checklist and say, yes, I did not do that. Yes, I did not do that. I think what Jesus is saying is God is not interested in the worship of people who simply can check off the morality checklist and say, yes, I can do this, yes, I can do this, when actually inside they are full of bones, right? What Jesus is saying here is go learn the heart of the law. Go learn that the reason these laws are here, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do all these things, is so that you can become the type of person who loves and cares in the same way that God loves and cares. Now, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. So let me, let me jump back in here, right? Because four times is where Jesus critiques the law, right? He says, you shall not murder. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment. Then down to verse 27, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, right? Then in verse 31, you shall have, you, uh, it's been said, anyone who divorces a wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And then in verse 33, You've heard it said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill, all the, the, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. And he has more of them there. But in this passage, four times he critiques the law, right? Yet in each one of those cases, Jesus does something really profound. And this is, I, I think, again, where the brilliance of Jesus kind of shows up. Because he critiques this, this, this sort of checklist morality. He doesn't reject it, right? He doesn't say, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, it's okay if you murder, as long as you, right? He doesn't tear that down or throw that away. But what he does is he, he, he establishes what the checklist morality says, but then he pulls back the cover a little bit. And he says, this is what it says, but this is why it says this. It says, do not commit adultery. And it's great that you can check off the list and say, I have never committed adultery in my life. 
I have never slept with another man's wife. I have never had relations outside of my marriage. I have not committed adultery. But Jesus says, but what's underneath there? Are you simply just able to check that list? But as long as you've tiptoed up into the line, right? And Jesus says, uh, even if you look lustfully at a woman, right? He's challenging uh, this idea that as long as I don't cross the line, I'm good. And Jesus says, look, it's great that you haven't done that, but that's really not what it's about. It's great that you haven't committed adultery, and I encourage you to continue to not commit adultery. But there's something else going on here. Jesus is offering something different. So in all of these things, and again, we could go verse by verse and and line by line through it. We see Jesus saying, you've heard it say this, and then he goes on to give two, three, four kind of additional explanations of what his understanding of the true law is, right? So it's not about not murdering, but it's about not contempting. It's not about not committing adultery. It's about not being somebody who is, who is driven by passion or by lust. It's not simply this command about divorce, which again, there's multiple sermons in there that we could get into. But I think what Jesus is getting at is uh, really kind of a, a cultural understanding that it's okay for me as a righteous person to divorce anyone as long as they you know, don't meet my requirements of righteousness. And I think what Jesus is saying here is actually God takes these things really seriously. And you're, you're allowing yourself too many loopholes than what God actually intended. Uh, and then this last one about the oaths of being somebody who, who, who uh, as long as you don't break your oath, it doesn't really matter if you're not a trustworthy person. It doesn't matter if you're doing that. So anyways, we have these four things, right? Four critiques of the law then Jesus seems maybe to be uh, adding his commentary on them. So at this point, perhaps we could ask this question. (laughs) Is Jesus just adding more rules, right? Because it seems that what he's doing is saying, this is the law, but that's actually not enough. If you really want to keep the law, here's six or seven more things that you need to be doing. And so on the surface, Maybe it just seems that Jesus is actually adding to the law and he's making it more difficult to be somebody who's righteous, right? He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, and what does it mean to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? It means not just to keep the law, but now to keep the 20 extra laws that Jesus has just added on top of this. This seems kind of like a a downer (laughs) of a teaching, right? But this is where it's important for us to remember Uh, something that Matt brought our attention to last week. At the heart of what Jesus understands himself to be doing, at the heart of Jesus' ministry and teaching and message, uh, he gives us this, this line in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This line, I think, is really important for us to understand when we look back to these teachings that Jesus gives on the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus seems to be indicating that when we yoke ourselves to him, 
when we attach ourselves to him and to his teachings and to the way of life that he is offering, it's actually something that is burdenless, not burdensome, right? It is something that offers rest, not more boxes on the checklist. That Jesus seems to be indicating that those who, who yoke themselves to him, those who take his words and his teachings seriously, find rest rather than more work. So what I want to suggest uh, is this. That in this, this passage in Matthew 5, on the surface it may seem that Jesus is stating a law and adding six more laws to it. But I think what he actually is doing is something that is loaded with, with freedom. And maybe I would even say loaded with, with a sense of grace. Because I think what Jesus is doing is he is critiquing the sort of checklist morality that had become an important part of being a religious person in his day. And he's saying, look, you've been living your life that's so focused on making sure that these boxes are checked and everything that you do is centered around making sure that you're checking the boxes and ticking the things and, and, and not breaking these laws from dusk Till dawn, you're focused on not breaking these particular laws. I think what Jesus is actually saying is when you can kind of detach yourself from that, when you can kind of remove yourself from the sort of checklist morality that had become kind of part and parcel with religious life at the day, you actually then find yourself in a very different place, a place that looks very much like this. We talked uh, a couple weeks ago about this idea of human flourishing that Jesus is concerned about, right? Blessed are, flourishing are those who mourn, flourishing are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I think perhaps what Jesus is getting at is this idea that when you can free yourself from checklist morality, suddenly you have margins in your life to pursue the things that actually lead to the type of flourishing that God always intended. In other words, when all of your time is focused on making sure you're checking off the list, you don't have any extra time to do the things that God actually cares about, such as pursuing justice, such as loving people rather than objectifying them, for your sexual pleasure, right? Embodying healthy and positive relationships with one another rather than being people who are filled with anger, right? But if your whole life is focused on making sure you're checking off the list, you don't have time to do the things that actually matter. You don't have time to focus on the stuff that God actually cares about. So in other words... <laughs> When you can remove yourself from this need to check the list of morality, you begin to become a person who can focus on the giver of the checklist rather than the checklist itself, right? You have the freedom to actually worship the God who created rather than simply the law that he created, right? You worship the creator rather than the creation. 
And you can only do that, and I think this is what Jesus is getting at, you can only do that when you remove this sort of checklist morality mentality. It's a good rhyme. Uh, from, from life. And so maybe simply put, by rejecting checklist morality, Jesus offers freedom to live the flourishing life that God intends. Jesus allows us <laughs> to step away from feeling this need to tick the boxes and instead to, begin, to become someone who actually lives the type of life that you were created by your creator to live. And that's a life that's focused on the things that God himself uh, cares about, loves. A few years later, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, writing to the, the Christians in Galatia, says something uh, remarkably similar to this. And uh, there's, there's different contexts and there's different situations, and Jesus in no way uh, ever removed the requirements of the law, never said you don't have to follow these things, right? Jesus, uh, in the book of Galatians says, was born under the law in order to save a people under the law. The Apostle Paul, uh, writing in a, a different era, writing as, as the, the minister to the body of Christ, people who are no longer defined by ethnic boundaries and are no longer defined by whether or not we adhere to the law, says something remarkably similar. He says this, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, right? Freedom from the checklist. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. What is Paul getting at here? When you can detach yourself from a sort of checklist morality, that says, as long as I do these things, then I am right, then I am good, then I am in line with God, and God is pleased with me, and I am righteous, and I can go to bed happy that night. Once you can detach yourself from that, you find yourself with a lot of freedom, right? Because your life is not ordered by checking these boxes and these lists. But Paul says, now that you have this freedom, use it wisely, right? Don't use it to indulge the flesh, but use it to do something good. And interestingly, Paul doesn't, says, doesn't say, you were set free from the law so that you can live a life of, of immorality. You can do whatever you want because the law no longer rules you. You don't have to worry about these things. But what does Paul say? You've been free from the law. Now you can focus on what God actually intended all along. Love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think it's a mistake that this is the teaching, the language that Paul uses to sum up kind of the heart of what God always intended. You may remember when Jesus was asked, what is the most important teaching of the law? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. For this is the first commandment with promise. And the second one is this. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? There's two things that are going on in this passage in Matthew. And I think that depending on where you are in your faith, where you are in your life, one of these two things may speak a little more powerfully than the other. And so we're leading ourselves to communion. We're gonna end our service with communion, but I want you to kind of bring these ideas with you. 
And here, here are the two things that I want you to kind of be thinking about as we move towards communion. Because uh, what Jesus is doing is twofold. The first thing that he is doing is he is challenging his disciples. And again, I think that we as members of the body of Christ can see some horizontal truth in this, right? He's challenging his disciples to be a people who put off a checklist morality. Do you need to put off a checklist morality? Has your life become focused on making sure you are pleasing God, making sure you are good enough for God by not doing these particular things or making sure that you are doing these particular things and that your whole focus of any sort of relationship you might have with with God is all wrapped up into a sort of checklist. As long as I don't do this and as long as I do do this, then God will be happy with me. God will be pleased with me. God will, you know, want me to be part of his family. If I can check these things off, right? Maybe you would not use those terms, but, but as you reflect on your life, are you ruled by that? Do you kind of find yourself in that, and I know a lot of this has to do with just our personality type, right? Some of us are maybe just more rule-driven, box-checking type of people. And while there's nothing wrong with that, it becomes difficult when we take that personality quirk <laughs> and transpose it into our relationship with God, thinking that God will be pleased with me if I do this and if I don't do this. Because here's the thing. If you have put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is pleased with you, period, <laughs> right? This is what grace means. It doesn't matter how many boxes have been left unchecked for this day. If you are identified with Christ, God is pleased with you. And so maybe for you, the message we need to hear in this teaching of Jesus is to Step out of this sort of checklist mentality, this checklist morality that says, I need to do these things, I can't do these things, and instead just kind of learn to rest in the love and the grace of God. So maybe for you, that's, that's the message you need to hear from Jesus. But again, the brilliance of Jesus is not simply that he rejects this checklist morality. He also offers something different. And so maybe for you, it's not so much about putting off the checklist morality. Maybe you're good at that. <laughs> maybe you're good at going to bed at night and not really caring whether you checked off <laughs> the good list or the bad list. Uh, sorry, I just think of you, BJ and Jen, because you guys are like, I feel like, should have just had you come up here and teach this. Right? Well, it doesn't matter, right? The checklist morality, that thing is not there. But maybe for you, you're missing kind of the deeper, the deeper teaching here. <laughs> that Jesus is saying it's not simply about not filling out the checklist. It's about learning, the type of learning to be the type of person who leans into the life that God has called you to, right? Or as Paul would say, quoting Jesus, <laughs> the whole law is summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe you're good with the freedom that you have in Christ, but how are you using that freedom? Are you using that freedom simply to be free? <laughs> Just good. And there are seasons when you simply need to do that. 
But are you using that freedom to find the heart of the law? Are you using that freedom to find what God has really called and created you to be? Are you the type of person who, who, who begins to find out who the creator and the giver of the law is by loving your neighbor, by caring for those who are uncared for, by serving, right? Put off the checklist morality, put on the flourishing life. Really dense teaching of Jesus, but I think we can kind of sum it up and bring it down to these two little points. And so which one of these do you gravitate towards? Which one of these speaks to you more strongly this morning? We're going to go now uh, to a time of communion. And here at Celebration, uh, we, we have an open communion policy, meaning you are welcome to share in communion with us if you are a follower of Jesus. If you put your, your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you're welcome to share. You are part of the church, the body of Christ. Uh, and this is a way that the church, the body of Christ, has remembered the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for 2,000 years. And it's nothing special or magical. It's a piece of bread uh, that's dipped in a little bit of juice, representing the body of Christ, which was broken for us, and the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. And so as we do that, as we come to the table, we come to this place where we remember what Christ has done, and in doing so, we remember these teachings, right? The death of Christ enabled you to be free from a sort of checklist morality. But the death of Christ also enables you to lean in to the flourishing life that God has called you to. And so bring these things uh, to communion as we share in this together. Let me have a word of prayer. And uh, Jen will be playing. And you can feel free if you need to spend some time thinking, praying, or if you want to just come right, right away. Uh, you're free at any point. There's tables set up around the room. Uh, let's, let's share in this time together. Father, as we now uh, come to the table of communion, it's a simple practice. It's a little practice, yet it's profound in what it represents, which is the death of your son for a group of people who were not good enough. Yet through that death and through that resurrection, you have made a way for us to be declared righteous, to in fact have a righteousness that is greater than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Through the death of your son, we are able to have a relationship with the God of the universe that is not determined by how many boxes we check, we check each day, but a relationship that is based on freedom and grace and love and mercy. As we come to communion today, may we bring these things with us. May we remember the love of your son and we re may we remember the freedom that you have called us to. We thank you for that sacrifice and we thank you for the hope that we have, as the Apostle Paul says, of proclaiming his death until he returns. That Christ will return. Christ will make all things new. May we celebrate that as we share in this communion together. Amen. Let's share communion together. I hope it didn't get jumbled in all the facts and details and historical notes in that sermon, but that was a sermon about grace and that his grace is enough for you. And if you're here today and maybe you've never 
fully leaned in to grace. Maybe you've been following God through checking off the list for years and years and years. Perhaps today is a reminder that God's not really interested in your checklist. God's not really interested in how many boxes you can tick. The only thing that God is interested in is whether or not you have put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And because his grace is enough, it doesn't matter how much baggage you come to the cross with, that he's able to handle it. He's able to take it. And so maybe today, I, don't, I, I know most of you in this room, but I don't want to assume anything. Uh, maybe today is that day where you lean into that grace and you accept that it is uh, his grace and his grace alone that is enough. But if you've already stepped into that, may you live into that. May we all be people who live lives that are defined by the freedom that Christ gives us and a freedom to serve and to love one another in the same way that God served and loved us. Let's stand and we'll close in a prayer. Father, you are gracious, you are good, you are loving. May we be people who, though we do not deserve it, embrace and accept that love and grace. And may that love and grace shape the way that we love our neighbors as ourselves, in the same way that you loved us through your Son. Thank you for grace and mercy forgiveness, and acceptance. We pray this in your name. Amen. Grace be with you.